unspeakable chapter in America's history. They are being rapidly brought from their state of savagery and barbarism to one of civilization. It's hard to know what genocide is if this isn't it. sense of a policy of the U.S. government that forcibly separated an estimated 100,000 children from their parents, withheld food from those who protested or threw them in jail, that took those often traumatized children, some as young as four, to boarding schools where their language was forbidden and their beliefs rejected, where the death rate far exceeded those of white children, and where abuse, both physical and sexual, was commonplace what to call such a system. Those who created it back in the mid-1800s called it the Federal Indian Boarding School System. But perhaps it should have been called an instrument of American genocide. Hello and welcome back to episode 55 of Waking Up With Mel. And today we are going to shift gears. I know I said last week we were going to talk about Dr. Hicks and his backdoor adoptions and uh, abortions, but... Instead, we are going to talk about the first genocide of American history, and it is deep and it is dark and my mind is continually blown. Are we surprised? A little background about me, if you are new to the podcast, is I am from Boise, Idaho, born and raised there. And growing up there, there is a lot of what we used to call uh, Native American. Well, we used to call the word Indian, which is just a disgraceful word now, and I see why. And we'll get there. And I never really understood the native past until recently, and they need to reclaim what was theirs. And they might be the most amazing race that is not talked about in our past. So how this all started is growing up in Boise, Idaho, seeing, you know, streets like the Nest Pierce Indians, the Waihee Indians, all these different streets named after all these Indians never once taught about any of them in school, about their background, about why they're not around much, why they're only put in little reservations. Um, we're just kind of taught they're these native people and, you know, who care, you know, they're kind of imbeciles is what they tried to teach us in school. But to the point where, and I'm so embarrassed to even say this out loud, but growing up, we used to play cowboys and Indians. And the the Indians were, in our minds were bad. Why were we programmed that way? It's an interesting question. If you were born in the 70s, 80s and taught these, you know, old Westerns and all this stuff, why did they have this programming still going on in 1980? And I'm going to tell you why, because they wanted us to forget who really created America and where we really came from. And so we're going to talk about it because... As I started researching old buildings this last week, I started seeing a lot of things that you guys should all look into. You should all get your computers and just start looking stuff up during the podcast or after. But you're going to start to find when you lie, you always get caught in your lies. So history is a liar. History is his story. And I'm finding that there's the real story that's about... I want to say 1600s and back and his story that's about 1600s and forward. But you're going to see a huge shift in the story in 1800s, right around 1820s. um, And then it just swiftly progresses until they have complete mind control by the early 1920s. So about 100 years. And 
they did this in a way that I can't even believe they did and got away with. But it's also because the Native Americans were trusting a lot of them. And they, I don't believe, thought that they were would ever be uh, controlled or taken over. So let's begin biblically. The first thing I had to deprogram myself from was the fact that we had much more technology than I ever knew back in the 1800s. And if you start to look back in pictures and zoom in closely, you will see the free electricity we had. You will see power poles. You will see all kinds of things. And I've shared these things on my TikTok many of times. And you get so many random comments from the disbeliever. You obviously don't know the city from a prairie. Or the person that's like, well, those were telephone lines when the telephones weren't even invented yet. So last week, I live now in New Mexico. And again, for some reason, God has put me in um, heavily Native American states. And I've seen ruins like Chaco Canyon. And uh, there's other ones that I now want to go check out. Um, I live in a downtown that is pretty, uh, for the lack of a better word, just sucks. The one in downtown Boise down t- is way more happening than Albuquerque's downtown. So we got, you know, a, a lot of oppression a feeling in the state of New Mexico all around. But yeah, it's a beautiful state. It's so weird. And I'm starting to understand why now after this weekend. So my brother-in-law, he moves to this little tiny town just recently, and it's called Las Vegas, New Mexico. It's the first Las Vegas. It's before the Nevada one. And I'm almost thinking they built Nevada after this one. So I go downtown to this little, this town has 13,000 people currently living in it. Again, run down almost all the downtown's almost a ghost town. It's just sad to see. But the buildings there were the most mind-blowing buildings I've ever seen in New Mexico. Bigger, better buildings than downtown Albuquerque. And I started thinking, okay, what's going on here? This is not built by cowboys back in the 1900s. There's just no way. They did not have the technology. And then I go to the old town here in Albuquerque yesterday, and I was completely just bored. I, I was like, there is no art. This this definitely was built when they said it was built. You can tell because it's just built with plywood. There's no art in it. It's just kind of boring. But then you go to downtown Albuquerque on first and second street, you'll start to see these hidden treasures that took years and years and years to build. And you're just like, hmm, then I'm going to take you back to Las Vegas, New Mexico. There's a castle there (laughs) and the castle is in the middle of nowhere in its own unincorporated city. Would you imagine unincorporated? I didn't even know we had cities that were unincorporated until last weekend. Apparently some exist. And I'm starting to learn that most of them are tied to this day to England and the, and the Royals. It's very interesting. So this is where the timelines really got messed up for me. And when I really, really started digging deep into these buildings, I know there were giants because in the Bible, it says there were giants. This is Genesis six. And I'm surprised at how many people have read the Bible that have glossed over this. And the fact that God has said 20,000 times, we are on a firm foundation. So these liars have lied to us since they've got control of of his story, right? They want to change it from God's creation, God's story to confuse God's kids and give us no hope and keep us down in the dumps. And you look back through biblical days and biblical stories, 
they started building buildings like Babel and Shinar and Nineveh says they built that since they came off the ark. Okay. So they have been building incredible buildings since at least they came off the ark. We know that for sure. And it says in the Bible that they dispersed across the earth. It doesn't just say Europe, the earth. They went all over the place, right? And you also have to think when there's a giant race, which is definitely through the line of Heth, um, Ham, excuse me, I almost said Heth, but Heth was one of his kids' kids, grandkids or whatever. Anyways, so if you don't know genealogy, it's important. And there's a reason God wrote it in the Bible. And he, he writes it all over because he wants you to know the gene, genealogy of Jesus and how it came from the line of David and Solomon. He wants you to know where the giants came from. And you can see that at the very beginning, all the Jebusites, the Philistines, the, the, all the ites, right? They're all giants. And so these giants, they're living too. And they needed giant houses to live in because they're huge people. The Bible says some of these creatures, I shouldn't say creatures, but beings, Nephilim, whatever you want to call them, were 20, 30 feet tall. So let's talk about this real quick. How did these beings come to pass? In the Bible where it says they were here before and after the flood, it says that the watchers, the heavenly angels, were created. And think about this. God created everything in love. He loved everything so much. Everything he made, it was all just created in love. And the angels decided that they loved women more than their angel estate. So they decided to leave heaven, come to earth, it says a third of them, and had sex with women. And in the book of Enoch, it talks about the names of these angels, what they taught the men of earth, how they started destroying earth, how they started having sex with everything, uh, like, you know, lizards and birds and beasts of the field. That's why only the clean animals, well, I guess I, I was reading in Noah's Ark, part where God is take take this of the clean and this of the dirty animals. And I'm like, well, why does he even want the dirty ones? So I don't understand everything that God did, but I'm trying to understand more and more as we go along. So Noah gets in the ark, 130 years go by and he's telling everybody, Hey, you know, change your ways, change your ways. 130 years. People are like, you're an idiot, Noah, just like people are doing right now to people that have hope. You're an idiot. Why do you have hope? It's in times. Wah. Instead of being like, wow, this is the coolest time to ever be alive. We have two narratives, two timelines we're on right now. Satan's, and then you can go right down that timeline, or God's. And God's timeline always wins. So back to the whole point of all this is when Noah got in the ark, he had his three sons and he had his three daughter-in-laws. Supposedly, according to the text, nobody was having any hanky-panky in the ark. They were all told to, to know. So once they get off the ark, they start having children. And one day Noah gets drunk. And for some reason, he curses not his son, who's making fun of him while he's drunk, but his son's son. So his grandson. And that always made me curious. Like, why are you cursing your grandson? And then you go and read the genealogy and you start to realize that from Ham, his Noah's son, all his kids, the giant lineage comes from, from Nimrod all the way to the Philistine, you know, the David and Goliath story. The Goliath is from Ham's genealogy. Okay. So we know there's giants. We know there's not giants. We know there's big, medium, and small people in the world to this day, right? There's the small people. There's the normal size, what we call normal nowadays. And then there's their tall people. 
Okay. Now we got this established. Now, you look at the buildings that you don't really think about in the Bible. We got Egypt. We know Egypt is like mind-blowing, right? I've never even been there, but I can't even imagine. You look at old Jerusalem. Again, mind-blowing buildings. You look at Solomon's temple. These buildings took years and years to make. They most of the time were done, you know, by a seaside or by some type of water so they could get materials to build these castles and buildings. And it's just incredible what they could do back then. And we're being told they didn't have any inventions yet, right? This is where the lie begins. They obviously had inventions and they obviously had knowledge from the heavenly angels to the children's children's children. So this has been going on now generations where they're building incredible buildings that you go into and you're literally inspired by life. You're like, wow, this is absolutely incredible. I could just spend all day here. So these buildings are across the entire world. You will see them where they didn't demolish them as much in Europe. But you will also see evidence like I did last weekend in this tiny little town called the Montezuma Castle. And so I start thinking, okay, <laughs> this thing is insane. You, you should, I only got to see some of the inside and I could have been there all day long, just looking at the details of just the fireplace. And they're trying to say, history's trying to say his story. And this is what people believe. And this is what people barf out of their mouths all day long. Yeah, this was burnt down three times. The railroad to the Santa Fe Topeka Railroad commissioned it. And the architects are these two guys out of Chicago. So I start researching and they never mention the architects. They just say the, that the Santa Fe Railroad built this. So I start d digging a little bit. One, is there anybody named Montezuma? Because typically if a castle is called a castle, but is not a castle, why is it called a castle? Two, no railroad has the money in the late 1800s to build a castle not once but twice but three times in the matter of three years or four years the timeline's just stupid with all these buildings too by the way so typically you'll see these amazing buildings some of them still have dates left on them that probably took at least 10 15 to 30 years to build but they're trying to say they built them not only that building but a bunch of other ones at the exact same time but it only took one year to build. <laughs> yeah, one year. I, the time, it's hilarious. I really didn't think, I don't think they ever thought the internet would catch up with them. Yes, I'll, I'll take that one. I'll claim that one. Yeah, put my name on that one. We're the greatest architecture firm in, ever. I just don't see how students that go to college and are taught who these builders are don't question these timelines. Do they not teach you guys the timelines? Do they not look at the timelines? Because the timelines tell the uh, tell the story. And we'll get back to these two architects because I really want to talk about them in a second. And and want to talk about how they started, quote unquote, finding these buildings and claiming them as their own. But we're going to go back to the castle in New Mexico in the middle of nowhere. So that the supposed railroad built not once but twice but three times from, I believe it was 1983 to 1985 is their timeline. So the railroad, oh no, it was 81. So the railroad doesn't even get here or incorporated or whatever until uh, 1880. If I say 19, sometimes I mean 18 right now because we're talking early 1800s, middle and late 1800s to middle early 1900s in this podcast today. And so what I'm starting to see is that 
these castles were here. And not only this, neighborhoods were here. Whole communities were here. Like I said before, I think it was last week, New York used to be called New Amsterdam. Um, everything was called something different prior to the 1800s. So all you have to do to really dig into history is Google who was the natives prior in whatever state you want to research to uh, 1600s. And they're going to always tell you, well, it was actually these people and this tribe and this tribe and these tribes. And what I'm starting to notice in some of this history I'm finding, especially in Virginia, is a lot of these people that they found when they came over, when they came to explore in the 1600s um, from Europe is that they, they documented they were giant like people. So it's documented. In, and I found all this in the New York digital library. There's pictures of maps. There's places where Christopher Columbus with that wasn't even his name in this picture, but it was close. So I knew it was him came to one section, different countries came to different parts of the United States to claim basically territory over here. But the territory was already uh, fully occupied by what we now know as Native American slash Indians. Well, this is where the indoctrination begins, because these Native Americans had built buildings, just like we saw since biblical times, and we still see all across the country, just like this castle in the middle of nowhere. And all these buildings were like Alcatraz. Alcatraz was, in my opinion, a Native American's place of, you know, where they got imports, probably the chief, the captain, the chief, whatever you want to call it, his family lived there. They have all these Native American homes and castles have enclosed walls. They're just amazing buildings just amazing and luckily they didn't knock them all down because by the 1900s they wanted to erase what we call old america or the old world and maybe that's why they now have this quote-unquote new world order because they completely want to erase the old world and this is how they started and i did not know this and i bet a lot of you don't know this and i think that once we start to wake up to this fact of what happened, regardless if some of these people were giants, because I can tell by looking, you can find these giant books, you guys, it's crazy, all the giant stuff you can find in historic archives. And I mean, don't go to anything but historical archives, and you can find pictures, you can find these giant books that they have in colleges. And these giant books have knowledge. But why don't we have that knowledge? Then I started seeing evidence of definitely demonic cannibal, you know, so there was sacrifice going on with a lot of these places. A lot of these temples were not just for healing. They were for demonic rituals. So I'm saying the giants, some of them were bad, but you can also see evidence of a lot of these cultures converting to Christianity. So I think in the midst of the 14, 15 and 1600s, you know, that's 1600 years after Christ, there, the work Jesus is spreading across the world. And that's what the Bible says will happen is the whole world will hear about Jesus. And we're not, I don't believe quite there yet. I believe there's still a lot of people who don't quite understand God or the power of God. And I believe this is a huge reason why this little crazy thorn in our history, this genocide that happened to these Native Americans children and their ancestors and their grandparents and their 
and we'll get there. Let's keep going. Okay, so you look around America, you see these well-established castles everywhere. But what I also started to notice as I'm researching this, that they took a lot of these castles and made them prisons. And this is where the story gets deep. Oh, and not only did they make these beautiful old buildings, if you look up any old penitentiary in any state, even Boise, Idaho, they were somebody's home once that were then converted into a prison. And I got confirmation from Alcatraz research today. Big time confirmation. Another thing you will see converted, I believe that was somebody's residence or uh, something sacred to these uh, Native Americans were the insane asylums. You will notice that insane asylums and prisons, all the first ones, were started all around the same time in the 1800s. And if you look up each state, you can even make a timeline of when the state, when the natives were taken over in that state, because that's when the first prison will be established. And it's an old mansion castle looking thing, just like Alcatraz, just like the Eastern Penitentiary. That's, some of these are still open to this day, castle looking things. It's just crazy. And so they converted their castles and their homes into insane asylums where they locked up the people that were not going along with this agenda. So they come over and I'm going to focus on Pennsylvania and William Penn because he is who took those natives over there and just screwed them over. And Eastern State Penitentiary is one of the oldest penitentiaries that you should definitely look up because they love to say that's how they started building all their prisons and they say all these prisons again were built in a couple years because they're super geniuses apparently half of these guys have no backgrounds in how to build anything let alone castles and mansions but yet they built hundreds of them across the united states at the exact same time it is so stupid it is so stupid so what they did is after they made these treaties and turned back is they took their buildings, they took their homes, they took their environments, and uneducated, <laughs> what they call educated, the children. And let's get into this. 100 miles from Mount Rushmore, a sovereign nation stretches out in South Dakota. Beyond the Rocky Badlands, the Pine Ridge Reservation, home to the Lakota and one of the poorest places in America. This cemetery tucked behind the Red Cloud Indian School is in many ways symbolic of a much wider reckoning, dating back 150 years. This was one of the Native American boarding schools, then called Holy Rosary Mission, sanctioned by the federal government and run by the Catholic Church. These schools articulated mission, kill the Indian in him, and save the man. And this is where Marcia Small enters the story, a Northern Cheyenne woman who we first met here six months ago. I get really emotional in these places. If the work we do is sacred, it will move us toward a rise and a healing. There's so much to be done. It's overwhelming at times. Mm -hmm. And if we don't all step to the plate, the nation itself, the United States of America, it will not heal. Small is the only Native person in the U.S. leading the painstaking process of using ground-penetrating radar to help heal wounds of a painful past by looking for the unmarked graves of lost indigenous children who may be buried at schools like this one. How might it have happened? 
Beginning in the early 1800s, the U.S. government set up over 400 boarding schools across 37 states, some of which operated through 1969. About half of the schools were run by religious groups, many of which received federal payment per student. Through the agencies of the government, they are being rapidly brought from their state of comparative savagery and barbarism to one of civilization. These unpublished outtakes from a 1929 newsreel show just how clear the government was in its efforts to force Native children to give up their culture. These children, but a few years ago, looked just like those we saw before. But today, they all speak English, and some have taken business courses. We bring them in, clean them up, and start them on their way to civilization. And the policy wasn't only designed to extinguish their beliefs, but to also make it easier for the government to take their land. In a 1969 Senate report, boarding school education was explicitly described as a weapon by which these goals were to be accomplished. What did it feel like to be trapped inside that system? We spoke to several former boarding school students, many of them telling their story for the first time publicly. When I called very sadistic because he took pleasure in spanking us. 89-year-old Basil Braveheart remembers being physically abused at Jesuit-run Red Cloud when he was a student beginning in the late 1930s. The memory of being punished by a nun for speaking Lakota has stayed with him all these years. She took on a rubber band. I want you to bite this rubber band with your teeth. And I want you to pull it well, as far as you can, let it go. The pain on my lips, physical pain. But worse than the pain of that moment. My friends laughed at me. To have your peers laugh at you goes to the deepest part of who you are. It's shaming. And very effective in getting you not to speak your language, I imagine. Braveheart was just six years old when he was sent away to school here. He says he now knows his family had no choice but to send him. And if they didn't do it, Indian policemen will come and look for you, horseback, and they will find you. They told us that if you keep violating this, they mark you down and they weaponize rations. Food? Yes. You either send the kid or we'll track you down with the police, right. we'll cut your food rations. So really, they, they didn't have a choice. I didn't understand that. Did you feel betrayed when they sent I you? I felt betrayed by my grandparents and my parents. But afterwards, they were following a policy to survive. At school, he remembers his hair was immediately cut, which is only done in the Lakota tradition when a very close relative dies. Very soon after we got to the school, I got a haircut. Do you remember how that felt? Peheng, which means hair, is very sacred. I remember my grandma said, when you cut your hair, we put that in a cloth and we give it to Grandpa. And whenever there is a sacred fire, the smoke becomes speared from the hair that transcends and becomes one with the uncreated divinity. Well, I take it that the Jesuits were not saving your hair so that it could be used in a ceremony. No, it fell on the floor and they were walking on it. That to me was a deep spiritual violation in this respect. As we spoke, Braveheart revealed a hidden trauma that he's lived with since he was a child. 
When I was in the dormitory when I was eight, nine years old, and every night after the lights goes out, when a person walks in it, you can hear the squeaking. That squeaking it still is a trigger for me. One of the authorities at the school would come into the boys' dorm at night. For what purpose? Looking for little boys. To have sex with, presumably. That's it. I became a shallow breather. Thinking that if I don't breathe loud, I might disappear. He was not alone. Just this year, a government report concluded that physical and sexual abuse was rampant at the schools. Braveheart's classmate, Robert Strikes Lightning, was sent to Red Cloud in 1943. He says he was 13 when a priest hit him with a sash lined with metal pellets. He was big and strong then. He said, you won't be able to sit for a week. He was right. I had blisters on my backside. And that wasn't the only time. We'd go in his office, and he would say, you know why you're here? Now grab your ankles. We'd bend over and grab our ankles. He had a big black strap back there, and he'd take that off. He'd grab your ankles, and he'll hit you till he sweated. About a decade later, Cecilia Firethunder, now 76, attended Red Cloud with her three sisters. My dad and my mom made a decision to put us here for economic reasons. In the 50s and 60s, there was no economy, there was no jobs, and so they had children to feed. And then at the big girl's dormitory. We talked in the shadow of what had been the girl's dormitory when she was there. She told us she was never beaten, but was punished by the nuns for speaking Lakota. That was the rule on the little girl side. You cannot speak Lakota. Do you speak the language still? I never forgot my language. Fire Thunder remembers the way her grandmother encouraged her to hold on to her Lakota identity. You had to live a double life here. You had to behave by all the rules, but keep your own self right. in there. We knew we had no power. The nuns were a power. You can't fight it, so what do you do? Just get by. Just get by. Fire Thunder worked as a nurse before rising to become the first female president of the Ogallala Sioux Tribe in 2004. Looking back, she says, growing up, separated from her mother, meant that she struggled to nurture her own children. Well, do you feel you were a bad mother? Of course I did. Of course I felt I was a bad mother because then I screamed and yelled and punished my kids. And then that's what you knew. That's what they showed us. Alex Whiteplume is also a former president of the tribe, although he attended two boarding schools elsewhere. The meetings were uh, usually they grab you by the ear and they jerk you down to the principal's office or they grab you by the arms so hard that they leave fingerprints on your arms. And we were little guys. And uh, that pain would last for days and... Um, you got to a point where you didn't want to tell your dad or mom because they couldn't do nothing. It's just waste. So uh, we just had to go along with it, and it was accepted. Did you ever get hit with a strap or no, that sort of stuff? No, the beatings. That was my mom and dad's generation that were beat. I was, it was a little bit lenient when I, I grew up. Have they told you about what happened to them? Yeah. Okay. I don't want to repeat it. The trauma manifested now in other ways, says Braveheart. Students I went with, especially the boys, all of them drank. He drank as using as a medicine to to tame their feelings. And it continues today. What this facility did and other facilities did toward people 
it, it still affects us to this day through poverty, suicide, um, addiction, many other things. Eleanor Ferguson told us she's trying to understand her own hurt. I had to go deep within and realize that it was the church who, you know, installed these um, traumas within my bloodline. It wasn't my family's fault. You know, so I had to stop blaming them for my hurt and my pain and my suffering. For the first time in history, both the Secretary of the Interior and the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs are Native Americans themselves. And yet, nearly two years into the administration, the Interior Department is still tallying up how many schools were involved and how many children died. Meanwhile, Canada, which modeled its boarding school system on the U.S., has already paid billions in reparations. And thanks to indigenous leaders there, the Pope even traveled to Canada to apologize for the church's role in what he calls genocide. These are the voices of some of those who attended such schools. America has hidden the truth from America. Yeah, physical abuse, mental abuse, you name it. I became a shallow breather, thinking that if I don't breathe loud, I might disappear. While we were at Red Cloud last spring, Brian Newland, the Assistant Secretary of the Interior for Indian Affairs, himself a Native American, showed up unexpectedly. How do you personally feel about this effort to locate possibility of children's bodies using these, this machinery? Well, it's, it's deeply personal. There hasn't been one single Indian person in this country who's not living with the impacts of and the legacy of these boarding schools where people didn't make it home from these schools. A number of kids who were taken against their will and against their families' wills to... to uh, be placed into these schools is countless. But there is a number. One expert says at least 100,000 children were legally removed from their families by the federal government, and 40,000 died. That death rate significantly higher than that of white children at the same time. And while Newland authored the Interior Department report last year, which concluded there were 408 federal boarding schools, much is still left unresolved. For example, the report never uses the word genocide. Why is the word genocide hard to say? You have to tell the story first and acknowledge first before then you can begin to move on, reconcile, and build back what was torn down. But that is not a satisfactory answer to many of those we talked to. Alex Whitebloom, the former president of the tribe, confronted the assistant secretary. And we're not going to heal until we say, see some type of justice by the United States. There were a lot of pleasantries until you stood up. Yeah. Well, I had to correct the history. What we're sitting on here is a Roman Catholic church land stolen in our treaty territory. And then the assistant secretary of interior saying, we're going to bring you money. We're going to increase your law enforcement. We're going to bring your language back. That just ticked me off something awful. And so he's not telling the truth. He should face up to the truth. And America should face up to the truth. The American genocide should be a topic that everybody discusses daily. And how we got to that genocide should be discussed daily as well. So picture this, the old world America, and every single one of you can see it if you live in the U.S. in your cities. 
I don't even care if it's a tiny little town like Las Vegas, New Mexico. You will see signs of the old world. You'll see giant windows with giant door openings, giant temples. You will see it all. You just got to let the scales fall off your eyes and look. And a lot of these buildings have left the old antennas with the free electricity. You will notice in old pictures that you will see street lights. You will see trolley cars in the middle of the street. These natives were so intelligent with their technology. And this is where the huge lie comes in because they're just now trying to release some of this technology to us. They had sophisticated sophisticated ways of travel that's documented in, in their history. And I'll read it to you here in a second. They had, which are called airships. If you've never looked into those, it will and look and Google how they used to land. Thousands of people could ride it and probably giants too, because that's why they're huge. A lot of people know them as blimps. They're called airships. They're the way they traveled back in the day. It's said that you could take one of those and travel across the world. Again, how easy would it be to get resources and things like that? You could land anywhere, up high, down low, wherever you wanted, on the water, on the ground. It is amazing. They had hovercraft cars. They show those like in the 19th. They took everything that they used to have and took it away. And the reason why, including oil, there was oil refineries everywhere by the time they took over in the 1800s. And then guess who took them over? The Rockefellers. Yeah. Probably built them too in two years. We should look that one up. That'll be fun. Ugh. It just drives me crazy. So what they did as they started taking over territories, they took over their achievements. They took over their power and their and those that wanted it kept it. And then they took it away from those that didn't want it and started making people pay for it. So yeah, by the 191800s when they started getting full control over all this, we had nothing anymore. That's why everybody's like I shared this TikTok and it said 1978 I grew up on Little House on the Prairie thinking that we burnt our houses down because our only electricity was a candle, you know, or a kerosene lamp. Okay, well, they had kerosene. We ever think of that one. But two, it's like, that's what they wanted us to believe, that we were poor and we got more sophisticated and, you know, they invented the car and they invented the telephone. No, they stole those and then they had to patent them because they didn't want someone else to go steal it, just like they just stole from the natives. They stole all that stuff. And the natives, they created it all together. I mean, there's probably nothing new under the sun, right? They've probably been doing that for hundreds of thousands of years, free electricity on all this stuff. And we're over here thinking that it's something new. In the 1900s, we finally were smart enough to get electricity. No, no. That's when they finally figured out how to steal it and then give it back to us. And, and its proof is in the pictures. You can see it all day long. Pictures speak 10 billion thousand words. And once you really start looking and zooming in, you'll be like, what? What? Nothing makes sense anymore. So I truly believe with all my heart and soul, and I, I feel like I could prove it the more I research, that Alcatraz used to be Native American. Well, actually, let's talk about Alcatraz real quick. I was going to talk about William Penn, but let's talk about Alcatraz because I went down that rabbit hole this morning. I told my husband, I said, hey, husband, if you look up anything, it, the, when th things started happening, insane asylums, 1800s. Prisons, 1800, they're all the same timelines, right? Uh, any inventions, any new architects, all these things, 1800s, 1900s, all these new millionaires. Because Rothschilds, when they came over here, they were poor. 
they there's what they call old money and new money too just so you know with these what they call elite people did they steal the money from the native cultures or did they actually have it when they came over from europe like i really truly believe that that's what that means so bring up alcatraz i'm like hey I think Alcatraz, now that I'm seeing that all these castles, and mind you, some of the castles, they left castles, but others, when they, they, every single old prison was a castle. And what's so crazy about it is the population of these towns where they needed these castle prisons were like 500. San Francisco Alcatraz, I think they said the population in the late 1800s was like 500 or something stupid, but yet you need Alcatraz. So let's hear Let's hear about who first went to Alcatraz as prisoners, shall we? I will put the link to this newspaper article below. This article is dated January 3rd, or it says on this day, January 3rd, 1895, 19 hoppy leaders imprisoned in Alcatraz. Hmm. Another thing is if you try to find the earliest possible pictures, you'll see what they did in most of these cases when they took over is destroy some of the building usually the tops of the building. Maybe they tried to run people out with fire, um, but they re- there's no construction pictures of any of these old world buildings being built. There's just, in every single case, the top being rebuilt. That's all they got for you. They don't have the foundation, the cornerstone being laid, none of that. And half these buildings that were destroyed and they have pictures of have dates on them that don't correlate with the dates that say they're built. Like the one... Uh, the first guys I talked about at the beginning of this podcast that supposedly built the Montezuma castle. Um, They, like I said, were in Chicago and they, guess what? We're involved with the world fair with the incubator babies. Yeah. They're the ones that were in charge of it. And supposedly they built buildings in Atlanta, Georgia, right around the same time they were in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Maybe they were on an airship. Who knows? Anyways, those guys are full of crap. And if you live in Chicago and you know about them, let me get you their names real quick. You should call out any professor that tries to give them any kudos or accolades as they're liars and stealers and thieves. And we should find out who really built those buildings and give the credit back to them. And if you're Native American, you should really be looking into this because your tribe built that and have no credit. They have them thinking they lived in teepees. The only pictures that I could find of Native Americans living in like makeshift homes was when they were at war and they still built most amazing forts to fight in. They almost resembled the castles they lived in. And then the the New World Order is over here trying to say the old world was forts, like Little House on the Prairie. They're full of it. Hey guys, I'm going to give you just one example on how you can call BS. First off, the native um, tradition goes that this Montezuma was raised at the castle in Vegas because his emperor empire that was in Mexico, that was one of the most developed kingdoms of the time um, in the 1300s documented, was raised there so he would be safe until he was ready to take over the empire. Does that make sense? But then they add in this part that makes it not make sense. They say an eagle picked him up when he was ready to go and flew him home. So maybe it's an airship, not an eagle. But I do believe that. So that's the native history of the Montezuma castle. Okay. Well, the and and that's probably why it's named after him, huh? Makes sense. 
make it make sense. Now we did. So the railroad, for some reason, decided to name it after Montezuma because they I guess they loved him. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. You see, when they first started taking over everything, they probably didn't start renaming everything. Like the Hearst Castle, that one's he definitely laid claim on that one, Mr. Hearst. You are bullshit. And he is the one that propped up Billy Graham. You guys got to remember this because I have a Billy Graham podcast and I think it pisses people off to think that Billy Graham might have not been the saint. Everybody thinks he was. And I've already done a whole podcast about that. But they all are linked, right? These, the Hearst, the linked to Billy Graham, who's linked to Nixon, who's linked to Obama, like link, link, link. They're all linked because they're all part of the same party of taking over the Native American cultures since 18, whatever. Well, actually, since the American, the French American Indian War, I believe. We'll get into that here in a second. Uh, but anyways, so... These two, Birmingham and Root, let's 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 talk about their history real quick because they're the ones that supposedly designed and I, apparently hired, or maybe they they hired the railroad to, while they're making the railroad, which again I believe was there already, and they just stole it. Uh, so I don't I don't know. I think as they lay claim to certain part, countries is when they are like, oh, we founded this. Hey, we found it. Quote unquote. They really did. They found it. So they founded it. And then they wrote it in their history books. And then they erased anything else from before that as they were just a bunch of cavemen beating the animals with clubs because they were stupid. But then we got here and we invented the planes and we invented the phones and we invented the power and we're so smart. And we stuck a kite up in the sky and got electrocuted. By the way, Benjamin Franklin is a piece of crap that is behind these first indoctrination camps of these Indians. So if you like that guy, get him right off your like list because he sucks. So according to history, the Birmingham and Root, Daniel Hudson Birmingham and John Wellborn Root, supposedly these two are just amazing. But what it said is during their 18 years of partnership, Birmingham, and it, by the way, it probably took 18 years to build all the buildings they say they built in a year. Uh, Birmingham and Root designed and built residential and commercial buildings because they, you know, during, right during the, by the way, they caved the economy right after this, right? So they took over everything and then they made everybody really poor and dependent on them. Good work, guys. So then while everybody's in the Great Depression, some people are supposedly building the old world, new world. Their success was crowned with the coordination of the World's Columbian Exposition, which is known as the World Fair in 1893. The two men met when they worked in apprentice as a draftman in Drake, Carter, and White in 1872. So let's get let's get a timeline here. In 1872, they're just learning how to draft. Okay. They meet. They're like, hey, what's up? Then they, a year later, start their own private business. Okay. With, now get this, they began to work by building private residence for the wealthy elite of Chicago's meat industry. Both of them married into wealthy families, which, listen up, allowed them to establish a basis for their business. Because no one's going to talk crap to the wealthy people, right? So, it says that Daniel Birmingham was the one that was handsome and he was the one that really was a good salesperson. This part of the article I found just so amusing for some reason. So they've established that the guy who later designed the Empire State Building, his name is Paul 
uh, Starrett, who I haven't looked into, but guarantee he didn't build this Empire State Building. Anyways, Paul, who supposedly built the Empire State Building, said he that Birmingham was one of the most handsome men he ever saw and how he saw it was how easy it was for him to get commissions. His very bearing and looks were half the battle. That's an unquote. While Birmingham was a pragmatic designer and impressive salesperson. So they're saying that Birmingham's the designer. Remember this, okay? Because we're going to get down a few paragraphs and they're going to totally counter this statement. Root became the creative genius of the company. So we have the good look salesman and then the creative genius. Okay, whatever that's supposed to mean. When Birmingham and Root were together, one woman said, I used to always think of some big, strong tree with lightning playing around it. Whatever the hell that means. is That's just a weird statement. Uh, anyways, that's what she said. Louis Su Sullivan, the famous architect, called Birmingham, and he's probably another BS dude, Bur called Birmingham a colossal merchandiser. <laughs> Nothing about building, but he's a good merchandiser. Obsessed with building the biggest coloss colossus structures of the city. No, he's obsessed with claiming them with finding them but building them no i don't think think so because we'll get to that timeline in just two seconds because this is real cute it gets cute guys real cute by the second um the most significant buildings designed by birmingham and root were built in the late 1800s so that's when the castle was built right 1881 and early 1890s that is when Root's designs actually paved their way for modern-day skyscrapers. Wow, they're even getting credit for that when it was the Native Americans. Until then, buildings relied on exterior masonry for support, limiting their height to 12 stories. <clears throat> Bullshit. I'll bore you with the rest of the lies on all the buildings they supposedly built, but I do want to draw your attention to this last part of this <laughs> because this is where it gets just hilarious to me. Okay, so it just says that they built all these amazing buildings and that they ref, uh, revolutionized modern architecture with their inventions of the urban office block floor plan as we know it, blah, blah, blah. And then in 1890, Chicago won the competition to host the 1892 World Columbian Exposition. And that was celebrating the 400th year of Columbus coming over to steal the land. Which I don't know how he got credit for stealing all of America because they had, from what I'm uh, finding out, is different explorers coming over on different ships in different parts of the country. So, yeah, Christopher Columbus dis discovered, you know, that big giants in Virginia, but he didn't discover all of them. And he wasn't very cool, in my opinion. But John Root was given the important task of coordinating the World Fair. After deciding on the location of the fair and doing the um, the plans of the site, okay, a lot of people are told, well, we are told in history that the World Fair are buildings that, that were fake. They do not look fake, you guys. There was, um, you know, the things we have at the mall that take us up and down the stairs. The at, I want to call it the escalator. Is that what it's called? No. Yes, the escalator, not the elevator, the escalator. They had an escalator. <laughs> the world fair in the 1800s they even lit it up so everybody could see the power yeah it's crazy what they exposed when they felt like it but they were getting pretty good control by the 1800s and I, i'll get to how 
they got there. But they're saying that he found the location because he knew where all the greatest downtown was probably. I don't even know where it was at in in Chicago. And they, right after this fair, they literally destroyed half these buildings in Chicago and then burnt the rest down with the fire because they like to burn down cities with fires too. They love to do that just like they did in Maui. Oh gosh. Learning history is, is interesting. I've cried a lot for these natives. I've repented because I even thinking back when they're like, we have to call them native Americans, not Indians. I was like, that's so stupid. Here we go with another, uh, you know, what do they call it where everything has to be politically correct. And, but you know what, that one for good reason that natives were natives and they have tribes and they have backgrounds and they have languages and they have a history and they deserve the credit where credit is due. They are the ones that built these big buildings and their tribes, not these white guys that I'm about to get to how this is just so funny. Okay. So they found where they're going to put the the world fair, but then Root dies and he dies in 1891. So he left his greatest project incomplete. But guess what? Daniel Burnham, now listen up to this one, despite only having practical experience and no, no formal training in the field of architecture. <laughs> okay, so the guy who's given credit for one of some of the world's greatest buildings has no formal training. Does anybody find that suspicious besides me? Then he's given the responsibility to finish the fair. It opened for, for six months. So they had the fair open for six months from June to November. This is where the incubator babies were. that I talked about in a few podcasts ago. Um, and that it, the fair stopped in 1893 and they call it a complete success. In this fair, they showed many innovations along with guess what the Ferris wheel, which I also someday need to do a podcast about Coney Island. That's another Island. I was, I believe was stolen. And, um, I believe they already had all those Ferris wheels in place far before they like to say they were invented again. Are we surprised? Because these people were around since the beginning of time and they had kids and their kids, kids had kids. And I'm not saying every native is, has Nephilim or Indian blood, but some of them do for sure. A lot of them uh, believe in Jesus. A lot of them believed in the devil. And that's true too. And if you look back at the giant books, they have one that has all the old Testament in it. And then like pretty much the first book of Satan that there ever was, uh, worshiping the devil. So it's, an, and they have that logo, the devil logo, that's in a giant book in, um, the old Amsterdam theater in New York that still stands to this day. I saw it in old pictures when I was looking anyways. Um, so the guy with no career or I mean, no background in building buildings becomes one of the most, you know, successful dudes ever. So then they have selected buildings that they supposedly built, including the castle, but they list all these other ones. And while they're supposed to be building the castle, they're building like two more at the same time and one um, church in the 1890s. And so like their timelines don't match up. And then half of these buildings, if if they were built, were destroyed like two years or 10 years after they built it because, you know, who needs 18 story high rises? I've 
screw it. So that's how jacked up history is just here in my own state, all the lies still being told to this day. So hopefully the natives here in New Mexico will claim back the Montezuma castle from the Brits because that's who controls it right now. And now it's a world school. Yeah. Owned by the, the Royals. So riddle me that one. But I bet Nevadakin is too. Because Nevadakin's a beautiful city, and I guarantee it wasn't built by Roman Catholics. Maybe the natives. I haven't ever researched it, guys, so I don't know. I haven't done the research. But it's so easy to go back and figure out who lived there and who's not getting credit for the buildings and who took over and when. It's very easy to find, especially here in America and Canada. Okay, so now I'm going to circle us back to Alcatraz because um, this is another one you can debunk pretty easy. And we're going to we're going to debunk it, how it belongs to the natives and not who they say. So this island, I believe, was t um, actually before we do Alcatraz, let's talk about how they started to gain control of all the Native American lands. I believe a real change in the American frontier history is this French and Indian War. So what was happening is, as I said before, the Indians, the natives, sorry, I didn't mean to use that word, the natives. Um, it is so funny because I swear until this last weekend, I wouldn't have thought that was a bad word to say. And now I'm like, that is not cool because that's what they tried to brainwash us with is that word to make them not as smart as they really were. So the French Indian War started May 28th, 1754. It ended in 1763. And you're going to start to see in history's his story timeline, the Rockefeller story, that a lot of things start to change around this time. And this is exactly when you're going to see a huge event, I believe, in Alcatraz. And this is where I'm going to start to now guide us back to Alcatraz and what they say about it. So they say that the first European to document the island of San Francisco Bay was Spanish naval officer and explorer Juan Manuel Ala, A-Y-A-L-A during the Spanish rule of California. Now you're going to notice that they don't talk about anything before when the Spanish took over California. That the word Alcatraz actually means pelican and that the, the name of the island that the Spanish explorer called it was the island of pelicans. So Juan names it the island of pelicans between 1850, they're saying. And then it says that in 1907, Alcatraz was the most powerful fortress of the West Mississippi. Okay, so it's already established, already built between 1850 when this guy sees it and 1907. And it's the most, quote unquote, powerful fortress west of the Mississippi that the natives built. I guarantee I could prove that if we can just go back a little bit more. So they're, they're saying that begun in 1849, the fortress was originally intended to guard against foreign evasion of San Francisco that the natives probably made, which had boomed during the gold rush. Alcatraz also played an important role in the Civil War, protecting San Francisco from Confederate raiders. In 1907, the fortress became an official military prison and in 1934, a federal penitentiary. Alcatraz ceased to function as a prison in 1963.
Between 1969 and 1971, Alcatraz was occupied, listen up, by American Indian groups advocating Indian self-determination. Today, Alcatraz is maintained by the National Park Service and open to visitors. So now we're going to get into what happened in 1969. But first, I'm going to tell you a little more history on Alcatraz that I found very, very interesting and quite sad. As history has proven, as these different people started taking over different tribes, they started locking up the parents and probably many of them went insane. Now, it's said that the women were in charge of the household, basically, and gathering the food and all that. So they were probably more of the ones that went insane. The men, they they probably locked up because the men were fighting for their families. So in January of 1895, the federal authorities imprisoned 19 Hopi leaders, and that's spelled H-O-P-I, and there's the Hopi tribe or Hopi. I don't want to mispronounce that, and I'm sorry if I am. But um, they locked up 19 leaders at Alcatraz Island on sedition charges for opposing the U.S. government's forced education assimilation of indigenous children. So they're fighting for their babies. In the 1800s, they got locked up in their own sacred place called Alcatraz. In the late 1800s, the U.S. government sought to Americanize, quote unquote, the Native American children by forcing them to white-run assimilation schools, often far from their homes and families. In 1887, so their parents couldn't just go visit them anymore because then they made their parents poor. And to this day, some of the poorest places in New Mexico are reservations. How messed up is that? That they're the ones that created these amazing buildings all around our states, and they're the ones living on reservations. Poor. Living off government crap. It's not cool. And then they build casinos and keep keep them poor. It's just insanity what they've done. So they got their other kids. They're shipping them off. They're locking up their parents if they're fighting. In 1887, the government established Keems Canyon Boarding School, a modern body Arizona pres- pressured Native American oh, in modern day Arizona and pressured Native American parents from the Hopi tribe to enroll their children. Hoppy families that complied with the government's order and sent their children to school were deemed friendlies. Does this remind us of COVID-19? How many people turned on you if you didn't wear a mask? How many neighbors called if you had more than 10 people at your house? You guys, they've been doing this since the 1800s. They're not dumb. And now they got the media to help control everything. While those who refused brand were branded hostels. So we got the friendlies and the hostels. When most parents, because most people would, refused to part with their children voluntarily, the government resorted to force, sending soldiers to round up the children and send them to Keynes Canyon. At the same time, tensions were rising regarding the limited land the government claimed to still belong to the Hopi communities. In October 1894, 50 Hopi returned to plant on the land that had traditionally belonged to their tribe. The U.S. government claiming to act in defense of the right of the friendlies. See how they do this? Oh, we're just helping these other Native Americans. And these ones are against you guys. No, you guys were on the same team the whole time, the friendlies and the non-friendlies. And the U.S. government got them to uh, turn their backs on each other. Probably because they're like, if I give up my kid, you have to give up yours too. Just like, if I got vaccinated, so should you. Let's put it on Facebook. Yeah. So stupid. 
It's like, I can't believe how good they are at brainwashing us. Okay, so they have the uh, taking their kids. They're having the friendlies, the non-friendlies. They're justifying the order for the militant involvement. One of the government wrote that the friendlies must be protected in their rights and encouraged to continue the quote-unquote Washington way. After January 1895 arrest, the San Francisco Chronicles reported that 19 murderous-looking Apache Indians had been imprisoned at Alcatraz because they would not let their children go to school. The paper added that they have not hardship aside from the fact that they had been rudely snatched from the bosom of their families and are prisoners and have prisoners they shall stay until they have learned to appreciate the advantage of education. The Hopi leaders were imprisoned in the wooden cells of Alcatraz for nearly one year. It'd be nice to be able to find their testimony, wouldn't it? As far as Alcatraz goes, I do believe the Native Americans are very aware that that land belongs to them because on November of 1969 through June 11th of 1971, there was almost a two-year protest when 89 Native Americans and their supporters occupied Alcatraz Island. The protest was led by Richard Oakes, and I'm going to make mess up this name, but it's La Nanda Means and others, while John Trudell served as the spokesman. The group lived on the island together until the protest was forcibly ended by the U.S. government. And the government, you know, did that in typical ways by turning off all the lights and just making them get ran out of there. And that's why you have to control the oil and you got to control the power because then you can control the people. You can decide when they have it, when they don't. We've seen that in the past few years, haven't we? If you really want to do some research on all the massacres that happened to the Native Americans over the years, it goes way back to 1325 with the Crow Creek Massacre. And then you have ones in between from 1518, 1519. You got the Kalua Massacre you, in 1520, the Alvarado Massacre. So this is as they're starting to take over lands. Um, and as I said, by the 1800s, they're pretty well on the way by having all the indigenous kids in reindoctrination camps, which is, I mean, you guys, this we thought Nazi Germany. Why is that the only thing we talk about? Why do we not talk about everything before that led to that? You know what I mean? We got the 1521-1539 massacre. I mean, these massacres go on 1540-1542. All you got to do is look it all up. And it, they go on and on and on all through the 1600s until they finally have control. And I'm scrolling to the bottom of this list, which is still going, and I'm in 1676. Um, they have massacres going on all over the place. 1689, Zia Pueblo. Um, in New Mexico, we got the one in New Hampshire, we got one in New York, 1690, we got another one over in Maine, 1690, another one in Maine, and they're all different ones, Raid on Fairmouth, Raid on Salmon Falls, uh, 1693, the Santa Fe Reconquest, New Mexico, uh, Oyster Ridge Massacre, New Hampshire, 1694, right, on and on and on, it goes, this list, where they took over and over, we're in 1757, New York, the massacre at Fort Williams. You know, we don't, we're not taught this stuff in school. We're not taught these, I'm, from the year 1300, I'm now in 1848, Texas, Brazo River Massacre, Utah, Battle Creek Massacre. This is across California, the Marisopa War, 
that we have these going on until they took it until they took their children they took over their buildings they took over the free technology and they left us with the crap we have now the last massacre they talk about is 1915 and this is in so sonora mexico it's the massacre of the san pedro and la cuevas okay History tells us that these Native Americans were smarter than we ever gave them credit for. We have taken over their buildings. When I say we, we didn't do it. And we can all fix this, but we just got to wake up. We got to give credit where credit is due. And we got to stop fighting and start uniting because nobody chose this. This was the government who wanted to claim land. And that's exactly how they did it. They just took it. And they're going to keep on doing it. Take it from us and take it from the next people and take it from the next people. I mean, the fact that we pay taxes on our land to a government is crazy because you never own your land. That's not the way God intended this life to be. And God intended us to have all those free things because that's why we had them since the beginning of time. God intended us to be inspired when we walked into buildings and cities with art. All the buildings were art replaced by stone boring, lifeless walls that we see now all over. As you look around the next time you're downtown in your city or a little city, little cities, look around. Let the scales fall off your eyes. Notice the big windows, the big doors, the big buildings that were made by big, huge people. Knowing that Native Americans, we know nothing really about them. We don't know anything about the giants. We don't know anything about any of them, but they are, it's written about. When I first saw the one in Virginia, they call it, it almost looks like the word Sasquatch. I'm like, oh, look at that. That's the first Sasquatch. And it doesn't look like a big old monkey. It looks like a really tall, huge person. It took away free, free everything. We didn't need education systems. We didn't need indoctrination schools. And that's what we all sign up for now. Throwing our kids in these terrible, terrible institutions that need to be changed and that the background of them are terrible. Your kids will learn more from you than they will ever learn from a school. Think about your own life. What lessons did you learn in school besides being bullied and how to socialize? Like what kind of lies have we been fed, guys? And what have we been regurgitating back into society? It's time to really go back, look back, and let our creativity flow back into this world and let the truth of the past be told and acknowledged and not laughed and mocked at. I've noticed most people on TikTok, especially because that's where I post most of my stuff that don't believe in anything I'm saying, don't counter it with an intelligent response. They counter it with being rude or just like to the point where I block them. I'm like, really? That's all you got? You're a grown up. And this is your immature, like, you're so stupid. You don't know where the prairie is. I'm like, really? You don't see that building right there? A little house on the prairie. She lived one mile away from this place. And you're telling me she she lived in a wood shack when she could have lived in this immaculate building in the 1800s. Okay. But again, maybe, you know, I know certain people at this point were poor because by the 1800s, like I said, they had complete control and they were making people poor because by the 1900s, we're in the greatest depression the economy ever saw. So anyways, I'm going to end with one last thing about these boarding schools and I hope you all wake up to something that I think can really, really change the world. It's changed my life, my world. I hope this changed yours. God bless you. We will pray after this. 
of drums and prayer songs, the remains of nine Sikangu Oyate Lakota children returned home to their native land. Their story is a long and painful one, stretching back over 140 years. There's going to be a lot of sadness here today. Beginning in 1879, native children from the Lakota and other tribes were sent to government-run boarding schools. The first group embarked on steamships from this point on the Missouri River, headed for a government school in faraway Carlisle, Pennsylvania. A lot of the kids were probably, this was the last place they saw their parents. They bought them here and got on the boat. Tens of thousands of native children entered boarding schools. The project was meant to assimilate, to destroy native language, culture, and religion, and to turn the young people into model Christian Americans. But many did not survive the school's harsh regime of maltreatment, neglect, and disease. For decades, the Lakota children lay buried in Carlisle Cemetery, but they were never forgotten. After years of effort to properly identify the remains and then carefully exhume them, children, including Little Hawk, Hollowhorn Bear, Strikes First, Swift Bear, and others who left so long ago are surrounded by their people once more. That's what we want for those kids. We want to come home. Does it make you feel emotional? Yeah. Because it hurts, you know, but I'm really happy. Young Lakota reflect on the hardships their relatives endured. I would have been full of terror. I would have been full of... Uh, I would expect nothing but death, to be honest. It's almost a nauseating feeling to, to realize what these kids have been through. The children's remains were placed on the ground inside a specially constructed teepee. There, surrounded by relatives and religious leaders, they were welcomed home in a private prayer ceremony. Later, the entire community gathered as the remains were laid out, wrapped in buffalo hides, and surrounded by sacred sage. People prayed long into the night. The homecoming is an event of enormous emotional and spiritual importance to his people, says organizer Russell Eagle Bear. There's a reawakening of our people, and that's important. You know, we need to, we can't be living in grief all the time. And on the following day, the children were laid to rest in the local cemetery, home at last, in the land where they belong. Rob Reynolds, Al Jazeera, Mission, South Dakota. Father God, I just lift up every single child that was stolen from their family, that their innocence was stolen and that their life was stolen from the natives of America to the natives of any other country that have been traumatized to forget their past and their roots lord may they be reinstilled in them may they know where they come from and may they know who the real god is and what a real christian is lord because that is not your way and that is not how you taught to to uh share the world about you lord and i just pray that these wounds of the past are healed and that the truth is told and the truth will set us all free and that we can unite and stop fighting over all these things that they want to keep us divided over Lord, I pray over the blood of all the innocents that's been shed over the America, and I pray that you heal our lambs. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Of thousands of indigenous children could have died at U.S. institutions. I don't like calling these, uh, these things grave sites or cemeteries. I don't call them that. I call them crime scenes. That's what I call them.
90% of my people, we don't know our language. We are on the verge of reclaiming it, but it's an uphill walk, you know, and we have a long way to go. It took generations to wipe the language out. It's going to take generations to restore it. She ignored him. He blames the U.S. government's boarding school policy for destroying his people's culture. As Native people, we've been severed from our language, from our culture, from our practices over a whole course of time. But the boarding school era in the course of history did a number on our people where um, we almost did not recuperate from it. From 1819 to 1969, hundreds of thousands of indigenous children were taken from their tribes and placed in state and church-run boarding schools across the U.S. and its then territories. The schools, under the guise of education, were a dark experiment in assimilation. The model for the schools was devised by military officer Richard Henry Pratt, an Indian hunter. By stripping away culture, Pratt believed he could kill the Indian and save the man. A motto, kill the Indian, save the man. I mean, come on, that's, that's, that's as genocidal as it gets. The schools were created for one purpose only, and that was to destroy our belief system, to destroy our family system, and to change our identity. By 1926, 83% of Native American children were enrolled in these institutions.